Well, it's good to have you back. Week 10, if you can believe it, 10 of 12. It's hard to believe we're almost done with this. Well, tonight, I want to talk a little bit about leadership. As a matter of fact, if you're following the uh, titles that we put out a long time ago, if you remember the panel that we had with all the pastors, that was the night we dealt with, with church uh, boundaries and structure. And so when I had that one week that was entitled more on uh, you know overseers, uh, uh, elders and pastors, that I've shifted to tonight. So uh, if you're following that along closely, uh, you'll need to make that shift in your mind. And most people have forgotten all about the flyer and the, and the title, so that's just as well. But I want to talk tonight, before I speak to the issue of leadership and what's required, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the problem with even seeing distinctions within the church in terms of leadership. And I want to talk about the necessity of what I've called here distinguished leadership distinguished leadership. And I chose that word carefully because it speaks to two things in our English vocabulary, and that is something that is dignified. If something is distinguished, there's a sense of success in that, and there's nothing wrong with that as it relates to the Christian life. As a matter of fact, if you're going to lead, you need to be successful in the Christian life. Uh, It's very popular these days to promote people to lead the church who are uh, wounded and weak and broken, and we love the, the wounded healer, as they often say. But that's not how the New Testament is set up. And as I often say, if you want to, you know, if you're, when my kid was in Little League, if I want him to be a better batter, I don't find a lousy batter and send him to batting practice with somebody who can't do it very well. I mean, if you're going to take golf lessons, you want to go and take a lesson from someone who's uh, better at it than you. Uh, and, and in Scripture, that's clearly what's required in leadership, distinguished leadership. Also, in our English vocabulary, the idea of distinguished uh, or being distinguished has to do with authority. And, and that's the thing. When these two concepts come together, there's, there's a dignified leadership because there's success in the Christian life, and there's authoritative leadership because their words and their decisions carry weight. They have bearing. Uh, their words are to be considered more soberly than other people's words because of the position of leadership that they have and because of the integrity they bring to their teaching in their lives. Now, the problem with that, letter A, is that it's opposed these days for a lot of reasons, but let's just call it democratic ecclesiology. It's opposed by democratic ecclesiology. And by that, I mean we've got this kind of thinking that is filtered into the structure of the church that we dealt with in our panel. In other words, we want every voice to be equal. We want equality. We want egalitarianism, if not in terms of gender. We want it in terms of the people in the church who have a vote, that the church is governed by the congregation. That's so popular. That's so American. It's so baptistic. It's so tied to our our kind of uh, political theory that we want to see that in the church. And we try to deal with the the, the issues in the Scripture, which shows that that's not a biblical form of church governance, uh, and it's not preferred, and it's not practiced here at our church. But when you think about the kinds of things that uh, go beyond just church structure, but just in terms of personal uh, comparisons in the church, we want everyone to have that equality in terms of who we are. We want every voice to, to, to bear equal weight. We'd like to think of ourselves as all just kind of the, in, on the same plane. And that gets back to this uh, wounded healer theory and mentality, right? We're all just beggars, you know, trying to, you know, point people where to find bread, you know. Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. These mindsets, these kind of bumper sticker taglines are things that, that are, are really what I like to call a democratic ecclesiology that goes beyond who makes decisions in the church. It really goes to, uh, you know, we should all see ourselves as, as, you know, equal, on equal plane, equal footing. Everybody's voice should have equal weight. Uh, it really has been something that crept into the 
a small group practices, particularly in the 70s and 80s when the whole you know, fad was let's get everybody in a small group. Nothing wrong with that. It certainly predates those days. But when you sit around in a small group and we no longer speak about application, but we start an interpretation, the theory of, ecclesi- of, of democratic ecclesiology was everybody's opinion on a passage bears equal weight. See, and what we do in our church when it comes to small groups is we say small groups aren't for interpretive matters, right? They're for applicational matters. If someone's going to interpret the scripture, see, then what we need is, is preparation. We need study. We need some qualification to that. Now, that's why we should never have in our small groups people sitting around saying, what does this passage mean to you? You understand that? is not helpful. That's just pooling each other's ignorance on what the passage means. When we get together in small groups, we should be stimulating and encouraging one another to love and good deeds. The application of God's word is what we do in small groups. And in that regard, there's nothing wrong with small groups. They're critical and important and essential in church programming. But what we need to understand, if someone's going to open up a Bible and teach from the Bible, he ought to have some credibility not only in his life, but in the preparation as he goes to teach the text that he's opening to the congregation. And that kind of hierarchy is something we in our culture grate against. And we come up with biblical and theological sounding reasons for it because we have this kind of democratic flavor to our understanding of how the church works. We have it in terms of polity and how it's governed, and we have it in terms of everyone's voice should have equal you know, credence and weight and gravity, which is not the biblical model. Now, once I start talking in those terms and I start saying, well, there's something wrong with democratic thinking applied to the church, uh, people start to uh, throw a flag on the play and say, well, that seems to be a contradiction of what's called the priesthood of the believer. Okay, And what I want to say before we go any further, what I'm advocating is not in any way a contradiction to the priesthood of all Christians. And if that's a new concept to you, let me show it to you uh, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, and I said that, um, that's not right, it's 1 Peter chapter 1. Put the wrong volume of Peter there. 1 Peter chapter 1. So once you jot that down, which I think I've tried to keep your writing to a minimum because we're going to get to a lot of writing later, as you can see on this worksheet. Uh, but in this first section, try to make it easier for you. Uh, Second Peter, no, no, First Peter chapter 1. No, no, no. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Is that what I've said? There's no, no telling what I've said at this point. Whatever's on the screen is wrong. That's what I'm trying to say. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 4, as you come to him, right, this is an open statement here. As a matter of fact, if you want to look at the context, chapter 1, verse number 1, to those who are elect, exiles in the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, all these places. So we're talking to all the Christians here that are scattered throughout here, most of them Jewish in this book. But he says this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, and he's about to quote some of these passages that tie these illustrations together. He said, uh, but in the sight of God, Christ, of course, this cornerstone, this living stone is chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Just that concept in itself. If you're a Jew and you're going to talk about the priesthood, see, very few people are priests. 
You, you have to be a part of the, the tribe of, of Levi, a descendant of Aaron, and then you have these uh, orders of the priesthood, and only certain people can do it, and certain people are qualified. If you have any problems with your health, any skin disease or any deformities, you're excluded. I mean, it's a very small band of people that can be priests. The priests were then to go to the Temple Mount. They were to stand on the Temple Mount and enter into the Temple building to intercede as a mediatorial act of representing the people to God. The prophet, on the other hand, represented God to the people as he spoke to the people. But the priests came to offer sacrifices, and you couldn't do it unless you were qualified. We saw Uzzah break the law, and we've talked about that recently on a weekend. We've seen Nadab and Abihu kind of do it their own way and be struck dead. This was a very uh, exclusive thing. You couldn't be in the, of the wrong tribe. You couldn't do it in any, any way that just it conforms to your own preferences. This was a very exclusive task to be a priest. Not everybody's a priest. Very few people are. Now, in the New Testament, he says... You're all priests. You come to him like a living stone as a part of this structure that's being built by God. And every stone, every person is a priest. That was kind of a mind-blowing concept. You now, as a Christian, are to see yourself as having access to God because of Christ. You now are all a part of the priesthood. And that's what we've called the priesthood of the believer. And he restates it if you look down in verse number 9. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, right? Now we're even reigning. We have this sense of being kings. The, the tribe of Judah is, is usually in mind there. The priesthood, the tribe of Levi in mind there. We're a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So everyone in this nation, everyone in this, this organization is a priest, has access to God, okay? Uh, Revelation 1.6, you don't need to turn there, but there's three statements in the book of Revelation that say basically the same thing, and that is he's made us a kingdom, right? We're a kingdom now, and we are priests to God. So we all have that access to God. Now, there's no contradiction here. As a matter of fact, I went back into my, uh, my oral uh, defense of my written doctrinal statement when I was ordained as a pastor many years ago, and I just took the phrase that I wrote out to defend there in, in that day-long uh, excruciating event, and, and I, I just plucked that out, put it on the screen right here to show you what I believe, what I've always believed, what I affirm and believe to this day has nothing to do with polity. And look at the statement on the screen. Every cr Christian has equal access to God. This is under the section where I was defining the priesthood of the believer. Without the mediation of any church leader, it's not like the old covenant anymore. One's spiritual growth or biblical insight is not limited by rank or position. See, now when I talk about being in a small group and pooling ignorance, I'm not saying because the laity gets together and studies the Bible, they're ignorant and only the professional clergy can do it. I'm not saying that at all. Matter of fact, everyone has equal access. What I'm concerned about is not just anyone should be leading a Bible study and not just anyone should go to presume to interpret the text. There are distinctions there which everyone is qualified to attain to. But there's a progress in spiritual growth. There's a progress in the ed educational process. There's, there's some kind of, of move toward not being qualified to being qualified. And you could be, uh, you know, someone who, who holds no position or rank in the church and have biblical insight, but you're going to have to work for that. There's going to have to be uh, progress. Spiritual growth is not limited to the rank or position of someone in the church. We all have equal access to God. That does not mean that everybody's equally spiritual. We all have uh, the, the uh, 
uh, access or ability to grow spiritually and to gain biblical insight has nothing to do with what your title is in the church structure, the organization, whether or not you've got a a title on the website, whether you've been to seminary or not. Uh, But what we're saying is there is distinction within the church, but there is no inherent limitation in any one given person that's based on their status as a Christian. That's why, by the way, we don't, in Protestant circles, call our clergy the priests, right? We, we call them pastors, and we call them overseers or elders, if you will, but uh, we, we, we avoid that word, not only because the New Testament does, but because the New Testament takes the word of priest that was a very important mediatorial office, and it dispenses that to everyone. See, to, to say pastor, not everybody's a pastor. Overseer, not everybody's an overseer. Elder, not everybody's an elder in that capacity in the church. But everybody is a priest in that they have access to God. They have the ability to grow and have biblical insights not limited to their rank or position. So that we're not denying in any way at all. But we are affirming, and what I'm trying to affirm in this discussion is that there is rank and position in the church. There is distinction There is a distinguished group of people in the church that are distinguished by success in the Christian life, and they're distinguished by the authority they carry when they make decisions and when they preach or teach. That is a reality. For instance, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, don't need to turn there, or maybe you should if it's not uh, firmly in your your thinking. Some of these passages, they think, oh, you all know these forwards and backwards, but perhaps it's worth looking at once you jot that phrase down under letter C. Look how strong these words are and how they grate against a democratic ecclesiology where everyone basically is, you know, their own autonomous leader and we're all just kind of getting together, fellowshipping. There's no real distinction in the church. We're all equal. We're all the same. Verse 17, Hebrews 13. Did you find that? Obey your leaders, right? <laughs> we don't like distinction in marriage. We, don't, we, we want total equality in marriage. That We so want that that even in Christian marriages, you no longer have what was in the common book of prayer for the ceremony of marriage, which said that a wife was to obey her husband. We don't even say that anymore because it grates against our society. We certainly don't want that in the church, right? You don't want to seem submissive to some distinguished class of people in the church where you're called upon and it is incumbent upon you to obey them. And yet the scripture right, affirms the reality of rank and position because there are people that are to be obeyed in the church. They are the leaders of the church. And here's the word, hupotasso. You are supposed to submit to them. Hupotasso is a good word, by the way. Hupo, the, the Greek preposition under, right? And I mean, that we don't like hierarchy. That Even that preposition, part of the, of the compound word, shows us hierarchy. And tasso, to line up under. I line up under what they say, what they model, what they do. Uh, I put my life under the submission of these leaders, and I obey what they say. And he reminds them, listen, they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. You may not like everything they do. You may not even like everything they say, but they're going to have to give an account for their leadership. Uh, Let them do it with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And that's kind of a veiled threat from God, is it not, that he says, you know, you'd better uh, be a submissive, responsive person. Now, that's not Jim Jones' blind uh, following, right, obviously. And we've talked about that in the past, but uh, we're talking here about the reality of rank and position in the church. Now, the other passage I jotted down was 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, I'm going to put that on the overhead because I want to highlight some words and show you uh, some things in this text that will be the, the foundation for the rest of our night, okay? This is 1 Corinthians 4.14. You can turn there if you'd like, but let me put it up on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians 4.14, here's the first part of the the text at least. 
He says, Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but now look at this. You want to talk about hupotasso. You want to talk about authority. You want to talk about rank. I, I admonish you. That's why I'm writing these things to admonish you as my beloved children. Okay. That is demeaning in our culture. We don't like that, that sense of, of being lesser than or under someone. Right? But I'm saying these are issues of rank and position, not worth, not access to God, not even ability and, and opportunity to grow or to have insight. He's not saying I'm smarter than all of you, you're less than me, but he is saying I'm in a position to admonish you as beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, he says you don't have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And that's pretty specific to his situation in coming and establishing the church and preaching to these people and winning them to Christ. He says, and I became your father through the gospel, verse 16. And I urge you then to be imitators of me. I highlight that because with this position becomes, comes his right to admonish and his call to follow and, and, and replicate his example. And that's why I like the word distinguished so much, because those are the leaders that not only carry authority in their words, but they also represent some kind of success in the Christian life that should be followed and imitated and replicated. Verse 17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Right? I've taught him, I've discipled him, I've sent him to you to remind you of my ways in Christ. There it is again, by way of example, my life is a pattern as I teach them everywhere, okay, so I teach what, I'm, what I practice and model in every church. Problem is, some are arrogant. They don't like that. It starts to even get us back to that thinking of that democratic ecclesiology. No one should be over me. No one should be, have the right to admonish me. We're all equal. Our authority and opinion should carry equal weight. Uh, he says, some are arrogant in your church as though I were not coming to you. And there is and predicated in that idea is to exercise my authority over you, as we'll see, verse 19. But when I come to you, if the Lord wills, but he says, I will come to you soon, rather, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power, what authority they really carry in the church. For the kingdom of God is not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, he restates this often, uh, not only in 1 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians to say, you've got a decision and a choice here to make. You can shape up and fix these problems. And then when I come to you, we'll have no, no issues. There'll just be lots of hugs and a lot of encouragement and affirmation. But if you don't, I will come with my authority, Paul says. I will discipline you. I will exercise my leadership in your life, uh, which has a lot to do with what he's already talked about in this book in terms of church discipline and all the rest. But he says, uh, you've got a decision here. Now, the rod, Shabbat, from the Old Testament, the concept, again, is a parent who's disciplining a child. He is giving his discussion here in this text that is highlighting the idea of rank and position, authority, the right to admonish. Now, look at the two things that were weaved throughout this text. Admonish you, right? That's something he does with his mouth. I urge you to be imitators of me. That's something they do by copying his successful Christian life. Verse 17, I sent Timothy to you to remind you of my ways, right? I gave you another example of another life that's like my life, living the Christian life in an exemplary way, and what he's living out is what I'm teaching everywhere. I teach those ways, I teach those things everywhere in all the churches. The picture here of leadership is distinguished leadership. The people leading the church should be distinguished in their lives as an example, and therefore they have that ability to teach with integrity and, in, and authority to admonish 
and to use other words that Paul likes to saddle the preachers with, to rebuke and exhort other people in the church because of the combination of a life that's distinguished and a distinguished authority to speak authoritatively to the church. That's the necessity of distinguished leadership, uh, at least in terms of what we've been talking about so far. Uh, and let me just summarize where we were in 1 Corinthians 4. Uh, leaders then are to teach and set the example. And, and I think of Doug Pageant's book, who's just taken a real dive off the edge of the cliff of logic and insanity. Uh, and I, I think I've quoted this before. Uh, he wrote a book on preaching, and he's in, clearly in the center of the emergent philosophy of, of, of uh, you know, the, the modern ditching of everything that is, um, you know, mainstream evangelicalism of the past. And, and he says, what right do I have to stand up and speak the Bible to a, a bunch of people? He says, I need to be learning from everybody in the room. Okay. Now that sounds great. It works in our day, this whole idea of kind of, we're all kind of just speaking into each other's lives. But the idea of the, 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 the position rank exemplary lifestyle and authoritative teaching is what we see everywhere in the scripture. I just threw up a bunch of quick verses. Uh, if you jot down the reference, it may be worth it if you go back to these notes sometimes to show you the combination of those things, particularly the idea that the teaching is against the backdrop of an integrous life that is an example. Paul writes to Titus. He's a pastor, and Paul says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity. Live a life that's distinguished. Teach with distinguished authority to, to bear that teaching on those people because your life is 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 successful in terms of Christianity. First Timothy 4.12, Paul writes also the, the other pastoral epistle, there are three, but to two different people, Pastor Titus and Pastor Timothy. And he says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. Apparently he was younger than Titus. He was a young pastor in terms of age, but he says, even if you're young, you're, as a pastor, you're to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. See, because you can't be a pastor, you can't be a leader in the church unless your life is distinguished and replicatable by way of good example. Um, earlier in Hebrews 13, we looked down at the bottom of chapter 13, but 13.7 says, remember your leaders, talking now to those in the church, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, those are the teachers, the leaders, the pastors, consider the outcome of their way of life. Watch what they do, how they live, replicate that, imitate their faith, right? The way that they live, the way that they trust God. Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians 4. You saw my life, know my life. I can't be there. I sent Timothy. He's living a life the way that I lived my life. You look at his life and follow his example. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example. Even the, I mean, we've already listed enough verses to take what we hear in the best-selling Christian books and hear in the lyrics of a lot of Christian music today that's all about, don't look at me, don't look at me, look at Christ, right? That's not the biblical motif. The biblical model, the biblical flavor and pattern, the tenor of New Testament teaching is that your leaders, those who lead in worship, those who lead in teaching, they ought to be able to say things like this, imitate me. Follow my example in how I live. That has gone so out of vogue today. They used to say that maybe in your grandpa's church, but I can tell you the people that are graduating from seminary today are never taught to say it, right? Because it's, 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 it's not, it grates against the pattern of a democratic ecclesiology. Uh, later in the book, Philippians 4.9, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Look at that list. What you've learned, okay, that's what he taught, and received, perhaps that's what he also said, heard and seen in me, okay? Practice these things. 
and you'll do well, right? You and God will go well. The God of peace will be with you. What you've learned, received, heard, and seen in me. Or, I mean, the most terse way to put it, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me. Remember this oft-quoted line, or used to be quoted a lot more in the olden days, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's not what we're hearing today because this idea of the wounded leader, we're all just on this you know, journey together and, and, and why should I have any right to stand up and tell you what to do or how to live? That's not how the Bible presents Christian leadership. There is a necessity based on the word of God to have a distinguished leadership in your church, a group of men a peop- and, and women as well in terms of the diakonos and the deaconesses who set an example for the body of Christ. Now, the rest of the time, what I want to do is spend time looking at the distinguished characteristics. There are 25 of them that are mandatory and required of church leaders. Now, what you're going to find as we go through this list of 25 things, there are some of them that are listed for certain groups of people, and there are others that are not. It does not mean because one is not listed in this column and one is listed in that column, it's okay not to be qualified in this way. Uh, if you know, like it, You can't be a drunkard. But that's not listed, say, for instance, for the deaconesses. So I guess deaconesses can be fall down drunks and it's okay, right? No, that's not right. See, so all of these I decided in terms of just didactically presenting it tonight to put them all together and just group them in terms of themes, right? And I didn't do a great job at it because you can see some of the groups have eight different characteristics underneath them, but at least to give us some sense of moving through some phases to think about what kind of distinguished lives your teachers should have, your leaders in the church should have. Uh, a couple things I should say before we go any further. Uh, this is not perfection. If you hate a leader, right? Uh, not that anybody would hate any leaders around here. I've never heard of that happening, but um, that's sarcasm and a, and a joke. Uh, if you hate a leader, okay, you can definitely go through this list and find something to throw at any leader that you hate. Guarantee it. Guarantee it. As a matter of fact, there's a lot about how a leader uses his words, okay? But for instance, James 3 says what? He says, we all stumble in many ways. If you were able to speak and never make a mistake with your mouth, you'd be a perfect person. And what does the Bible say about perfect people? 1 John 1.8 says, you're kidding yourself if you think you don't sin. We all sin. James says, we all stumble in many ways. The context of that is great because he's talking about leaders. He says, not many of you should become teachers because you know you're going to incur a stricter judgment. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, right? No one's a perfect man. So for instance, we look at this list And we recognize that this is a list that is not speaking of perfection. And everyone's going to enlist one of these when they have a grudge against a leader and they're going to find something they said at some point and they're going to say, see there, they're not qualified. That's not how this works, right? Uh, This is a snapshot of the kinds of things that they ought to pattern their lives after. They ought to be good at it. In other words, the batting coach that I sent my kid to when he was in Little League didn't, you know, get a home run every time he swung the bat but he was better than most. That's why we sent him there. We sent him to go get a golf lesson somewhere, you know, from, from a guy that is good. He doesn't get a hole in one on every par three, right? But he's better than most. And, and, and he sets the pattern and he's capable to teach with integrity because he knows how to do what he's trying to teach, right? Perfection is not what we're talking about here. And you need to understand that. I, I think of the, I mean, think about what we do as teachers. We, we speak. The Old Testament proverb says, uh, where, um, where, where there's an abundance of words, transgression is unavoidable, right? I have thousands of hours of my talking recorded, really, literally. You, you could look up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours and you're going to find mistakes, problems. 
But what you should be able to say is that when Mike speaks, not only when it's recorded, but whenever in his life, the pattern of his life meets these qualifications. Not to mention that this is not something that's true of all time. We're looking at someone who has met these qualifications for a reasonable season of their lives, and we say they're qualified. For instance, one of the things we're going to look at is you can't be quick-tempered. You may look back in your Christian life, early in your Christian life, where you were quick-tempered. Well, you better get that under control, and you ought to be able to have a season of life where you're qualified to say, you know what, as a a reasonable description of my life, I'm not quick-tempered. And I'm above reproach in that regard. That doesn't mean I've never lost my temper. That just means that if you look at my life, you see that that is under control and consistently sets a pattern, not perfection, but in this season of life, okay? Uh, so we need to be careful because you can take these requirements and you can bash anybody in leadership anywhere. Why? Because as James says, there is no perfect person. As John said, if we say we're without sin, we make him out to be a liar. Uh, God is, the God that is, and his truth is not in us. We all stumble in many ways, right? What we're looking for is pastors, leaders, ministry leaders that set an example here, okay? And watch professional golf, for instance. I know it's very boring to watch, but they watch it in my family, so occasionally I I have to watch a little bit of it. Um, You know, you watch these guys, and golf's a real hard game, just like the Christian life. Sometimes they make bad shots, and that's where I always say, stop it, reverse that. I want to see that bad shot again. It's usually how it is with Christian leadership too, right? Whenever someone stumbles in their lives, we always want to shine the highlight on that. Even professional golfers uh, duff a shot every now and then, but I tell you, they'll beat you on the course every time you want to challenge them, right? That's the point. They're setting the pattern. I'd be happy to have them on my team at a golf tournament because they're better than most. All right, got all that? Now, I got a little table there for you. 1 Timothy 3 uh, 2 through 7, Titus 1, 6 through 9, 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 12, and 1 Timothy 3, verse 11, okay? Those are the, the um, passages we're going to look at that, are, that give requirements for leadership, okay? One is to the pastors where Paul makes a list to, to Timothy in Ephesus, and the other is to Titus on the island of Crete. The other is in the middle of that discussion about the, the uh, presbyteros, appointment, and episkopos, the, the pastors. Then he goes to talk about the diakonos, the leaders, the ministry leaders. And then we, if we understand the syntax properly of the, uh, which I think is the right interpretation of the text, of the gals in the middle of that, it's not the deacon's wives, but those that are female in that text that are required to be these things, uh, even if you don't buy that, by the way. Even if you don't buy that and you say, well, I just believe that is the wives of deacons, I hope the wives of your ministry leaders uh, are exemplary Christians as well, right? But I I believe these are requirements because the syntax of they must be is in there. Um, All of these are examples, not only for what you expect from your leaders, but how you should live. I think of 1 Peter chapter 5, which is another text I suppose we could throw in here, although it's not a classic requirement list for leaders. He says that the pastors should be examples to the flock. And that means this, in all the passages I gave you about being an example to the flock, you should want to be all of these things. And that's where I prayed at the beginning of this lecture tonight that what you do in working through this list, I hope is not just let me measure my leaders to see if they're doing that, although you should be able to do that. Uh, successfully, but you should be able to say, I should be all of these things as well. As a matter of fact, if I'm ever going to aspire to leadership, I have to be these things, but I want to be these things because it is the pattern of what it means to live the Christian life, and every brand new Christian should want to be all these things. Now, you got boxes underneath that. Just fill this in real quick, A, B, C, and D, because what you're going to find is that's the key to the rest of these, uh, and I already put 
every line, every characteristic, every requirement, I put letters next to them, and that tells you which column they come from. Now, I created all kinds of charts in preparation for this sermon that didn't end up on the worksheet. Uh, And you'll be thankful for that because some got very complicated. But uh, what I've done for you is if you want to find these, you can go back to the key and say, okay, well, this is a requirement that shows up in, say, A, B, and C. And that means it's going to be in the list for pastors in 1 Timothy 3, for pastors in Titus 1, and for ministry leaders in 1 Timothy 3. Do you follow that key? That's what we're doing with this list, okay? So let's get started, okay? I've categorized the first one this way. The distinguished characteristics begin with this category. Now, these are arbitrary. They're not fully arbitrary, but they're at least my attempt to group them together. And if you want to summarize, and I, what did I give you? A, B, C, D, and E, five categories. The first category is this, that the people that lead in the church should be recognized as godly people. The person who's going to be a leader, who is qualified to teach and lead and make decisions that carry more weight than other people's decisions, that have a kind of life that's replicatable, ought to be godly people. And since all the Christians are supposed to strive to be godly, in an article I wrote this week, they ought to strenuously gymnazo, they ought to, like they're working out at the gym, try to be godly people, then all these things are things that you should want to be, okay? Number one, this is found in the third list. And I start with this one because logically, I think the first thing you ought to be able to say is before anybody else examines your life, you examine your life and you say, you know what? I I am a godly person. Now, that doesn't mean I'm a perfect person, but that means in my mind, my, my conscience is clear that there is no glaring inconsistency in my own life. There's nothing impinging on my sense of right and wrong in the way that I carry my life about. The practices, the habits, the patterns, the entertainment, the investments, the vocabulary of my life. There's nothing as I look at my life, and I know it better than you do, that I should be able to say nothing there that's impinging on my sense of right and wrong. My conscience is clear. My conscience is not saying in condemning me. Mike, you know, there's an area of your life that is is out of kilter with what the Bible requires for godliness. And that should be the way you should live your life. If there's an area of your life where your conscience is violated, you ought to attend to that. You ought to repair it. You ought to reform it. It's called repentance. You ought to turn from it, and you ought to change the direction of your life as it relates to that sense of guilt. Clear conscience. That's an obvious one. It's not hard to understand. There you go, number one, out of the way. The other one that is found in list A, B, and C for the pastors in both pastoral epistles and for deacons is that they be above reproach. Now, I I, I even built a chart with the Greek text uh, wanting to show you the nuances of the way the Greek text was used, and then I thought, number one, I had no room for it. It is interesting, though. If you're a Greek student or even you just mess around with logos enough, you'll find that different words are used here. And only once in the ESV does it actually swap the word from above reproach to blameless. But it means the same thing. That means that other people... Now, clear conscience means I'm looking at my life saying there's nothing glaringly out of place. Other people are looking at my life and saying nothing glaringly out of place. No one's saying the guy's perfect, right? The more you know me, you know I'm not, and no leader is, and James said no one would be. But every leader that leads in the church and teaches in the church ought to be someone that you look at their life and you say, there's, 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 there's a life that's free from credible reports of some kind of sinful pattern and behavior, okay? That's a good way to state it. Lives a life that's free from credible, substantially credible reports of sinful patterns and sinful behaviors above reproach. 
That's a big phrase. We toss it around. We saw the word blameless used of Zacharias and, and Elizabeth. Remember in our teaching there on our study of Luke chapter 1, they're said to be blameless. And we said, of course, that doesn't mean they were perfect. But people looked at them and said, there's no credible, substantial report of them having a sinful uh, pattern of life or behavioral um, rebellion or, or transgression. Okay? Number three, faithful in all things. Now, again, D, if you look at the chart up there, this is given to who? The deaconesses, right? The female ministry leaders. Doesn't mean that everybody else doesn't have to be. It just means when it comes to that particular list, in verse 11 of 1, Corinthians, of 1 Timothy 3, there is something specific to the female leaders that needs to be emphasized here, and yet it's true of all the leadership, that you ought to be able to look in their lives and see a reliable, consistent living out of one's Christian life, that they are faithful in all things that they don't have, as we sorrowfully hear from time to time, people at church living this life that looks so good and looks so right and looks so you know, attentive to detail and doing things the way God asks us to, and then you peel back the cover in their home and it's out of control. Or you look at their work and, and their reputation at work, it's terrible. They're not faithful in all the areas of their lives. Of course, this is not perfection. I don't need to keep saying that, do I? You understand this is not perfection. But what we are talking about is the snapshot of that life. In this consistent season of life, there is reliability in all the areas and, and, and venues of, of their, their lives, faithful in all things. The way it's put in the first list, First Timothy chapter 3, as it relates to pastors, it says they ought to have a good reputation, or literally, as it states in the text, I guess we could, could read it, I meant to bring a couple of those charts with me tonight, but I didn't. Left them on my desk. Here's how it's put in verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. We all despise the devil, I hope, right? We don't want our leaders, we don't want your life to have that reputation. That's disgraceful. So we want, it says, even with outsiders in the way the pastoral epistles usually refer to outsiders, and Peter as well in his epistles, we're usually talking about non-Christians there, people that are not in the church. So when, it, when we talk about the person's reputation, is their reputation good? And I don't just mean inside the church, but is their reputation good outside? The church? They might not like us because of our Christianity. But when it comes to a non-Christian looking at the life, they say, you know what? Reliable, consistent, good person, virtuous person. They're not a cheat. They're not, they're not a liar. They're not, they're, not a, they're not a thief. They're not a crook. A good reputation. And that only goes so far, obviously, with non-Christians. But what we're looking for there is that whether they run their business or their home or their neighbors report on them, they're fair, virtuous, good, decent people. And the, even the non-Christian world can recognize that. Now, here's a word that's translated in the ESV, upright. And I don't know, I just think that's an unfortunate translation only because if I asked you to write down a definition of upright, I think it would be all over the map. What does it mean to be upright? I don't know. You don't slouch? What, what does that mean? Well, I don't know. You're, you're a good person, I guess. This is the word, the, the, the root word, um, that we get all those words like justice, righteousness, just, uh, having equity. This is the word that, that translates this Greek, this, from this Greek word to this English word, upright. To be upright carries a more narrow sense than just, hey, they live a decent life. It means that their life is fair, equitable, that they do what is impartial. It's like the word that we would use of a judge in the Old Testament, at least in the Hebrew text. We would have this sense of them, and it is translated in the Septuagint this way, that they are equitable people. They are fair. And in that regard, I put it next to good reputation with outsiders, even though it's in the Titus list and not in the Timothy list, because if you think about outsiders at work, for instance, the non-Christians that know you at work, 
if there was a situation that needed to be adjudicated, someone had to kind of solve a dispute, right? Would they pick you to do it because they know you'd be fair, impartial, you'd do what was right and equitable? That's the idea here of upright. They're a fair, equitable person. And the images that I think you need to measure your life by is, do the non-Christians, either in my neighborhood or at my workplace, or in some circle that's not filled even with Christians, would they choose me to decide a dispute between people that couldn't be decided? That's the idea of, of, of the dika root of, of this Greek word, to be an upright, equitable, fair, just, impartial person. Now, that's not just something outside the church, but inside as well. This is the broad, a real broad word, compound word. Um, It's a compound word of phileo and agathos. And you probably know those words. You've been around church long enough. Phileo, to love, right? Have a brotherly love. Put your arm around and embrace as as a brother in your life. Uh, Agathos, what's good? What's what's decent? And and this has the sense that in my heart, that that in your heart, as you aspire to, to, to replicate what you see in your leaders, I trust, a sincerity to do what is good, to do what is right, that you love the right thing. Even in the 1 Corinthians 13 list about what love is, do you remember that one line, that they rejoice in the truth? You know, that idea of loving what is good, that you're even willing to celebrate that, even if it's not your good. It's something that just it makes you feel like, yeah, that's right, because you love what is right. You love what is good. Not just sentimentally. There's a lot of people that will look at a news story when they do the lighter side of news or the good news of the week or whatever. Oh, that's really sweet. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you want the good thing to happen, which often is expressed when you see justice carried out in a courtroom on a news broadcast, for instance. There's a sense of, I love what's right. I love what's good. I have a sincere desire to see God's will carried out. I rejoice in what's good, a lover of good. Respectable. That's in the first list, 1 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Timothy chapter 3. Respectable. And that one's not hard, and it's a good translation. It has the idea of currying respect. Other people look at your life, and they respect it. It's a model of a lifestyle that people respect. Now, of course, this breaks down at some point with non-Christians because they want us, as Peter says, to run headlong with them into all this dissipation and debauchery, and we don't do it, so they think we're square and all that. They wouldn't pick us to go to a party with them, but they would respect our life for having it together in terms of how we live our lives, how we conduct our business, our ethics, our ideas in terms of what is fair and equitable and right and good. It's a respectable life, and of course, in the church, it ought to be that way as well. Curry's respect as a model lifestyle of good behavior. That's how I define it. Curry's respect as a model lifestyle of good behavior. Lastly, dignified. Both C and D for the deacons and the deaconesses. It's really the parallel concept for the word above reproach or blameless. Because when it talks about the deacons and the, the, the ministry leaders and the female ministry leaders, both their lists start with the idea or include the idea of, of, and the word to be dignified. Uh, and that carries such a broad sense of being honorable. Um, I, I should go further than that. I know it's a broad word and it's almost an umbrella word to set up the rest of what's said for the deacons, the, the ministry leaders, male and female. But the word is much like the word in the Old Testament, kabod. You've heard me talk about the Hebrew word kabod. What does that translate? Do you remember, Sunday school graduates? Kabod means what? Anybody? Glory. Okay, you, you were going to say that. Glory, right? Glory, kabod. And I've translated that for you before. In Hebrew, what does the word kabod literally mean? We translate it glory, which is a hard word for us to even understand or define. But what does the word literally mean, kabod? Do you remember? Weight, weight or gravity. See, the weight or gravity in the Old Testament word kabod is, the, is the really what is translating here, that sense of gravity, weight, reverence, seriousness, 
As a matter of fact, some commentators, not commentators, but le- uh, uh, lexicons will define this as something that is majestic, right? Uh, now, see what that excludes? Now, a lot of these listings are excluding things, and don't be this, don't be that. You could turn this one around, and this is someone who's not silly, not irreverent, not, not, not foolish, you know? That's the idea. Now, it doesn't mean that pastors and leaders or you as a serious Christian can't laugh or can't tell a joke, but what it means is that we're not, you know, the, the, the frivolous kind of, of, of silly lifestyle that so many people have. You can't, I mean, for instance, there are people I know, and I pray for them in their Christian life, and at times in the right relationship, when I've taken people through partners that have this, I, I try to address it, and that's that layer of always having, making a joke about everything. You know people like that? Everything's got, it, and I say it's a layer because it's a buffer for people to stay away from the real me if I can make a joke about everything in life. And, and, and what I recognize from a word like this to be dignified is you got to lose that layer. I'm not saying you lose your sense of humor, but you have to lose that layer to be a, a, a serious candidate for any leadership in the church, right? Because your, your life, as it relates to this word, to be qualified for leadership, even ministry leadership, there should be a dignified, serious, reverent gravity to, to your life. doesn't mean you're the somber person, but it does mean that you're not the silly person. Does that make sense? Now, look at those things. Clear conscience, above reproach, faithful in all things, good reputation, upright, lover of good, respectable and dignified. Those are words, I think, that all fit under the rubric here of godly person. Those are, that's kind of the general ones of being a godly person, okay? Let's get more specific. Distinguished characteristics, letter B, backside. Oh, and by the way, since it only takes a second, A, B, C, and D, that'll help you if you want to remember the column that these come from. There, I, I did repeat that chart, right, at the top of the back page. Let's put it this way, lives a disciplined life. Now, I tried to find a word that wasn't going to be repeated in the list, but you know what? It's such a good word, and it carries a good meaning in our English language and in our communication, so I ripped it off from the first one I was going to list here, and that's the word disciplined. To live a disciplined life, right, is a life that is, as this word recommends, has borders, has boundaries, has controls. There's even a sense of having a strict regimented life of spiritual disciplines and spiritual habits and order to the life. There is a disciplined life. And, and that obviously is primarily as it relates to spiritual things, but it should overlap into the rest of a person's life. For instance, when the, New Te- or the Old Testament in Proverbs is trying to speak to godliness, it points to a man's house and says if the wall is broken down and the, the garden is full of nettles or, or thorns and, and weeds, then it reflects something about the ordered lifestyle of the person living in the house, and that's not a godly thing. So in that regard, as you look at someone or even yourself and you think about what you should be in the Christian life and what your leaders ought to exemplify, there ought to be a sense in which there's an ordered, regimented, boundaries, controlled kind of lifestyle that even goes beyond, do they get up every morning and study the Bible? Do they have a good regimented prayer life? But look at the rest of their lives, right? Uh, you know, now again, we're not perfect. Go to my garage and it ain't perfect, right? There's a, there's a spiritual test, right? What do the pastor's garages look like? Um, but I mean, there is some truth to that, is there not? I mean, there's a sense in which there ought to be a connection there. Uh, there, There's there's a disciplined, ordered lifestyle with boundaries and controls and regimented schedules and habits. That's the idea. The next thing goes a little deeper into the brain and the mind of the person. Translated this way, both for the uh, deaconesses and the elders in the elder list in 1 Timothy 3, the pastors. Both the gals and The ministry leader women are specifically told to be sober-minded, and the pastors in 1 Timothy 3 are told to be sober-minded. That, obviously, is getting to the level of my 
my mind. Matter of fact, some uh, lexicons will translate it this way, to be level-headed, which is a good idiom in our day. A level-headed person has sound judgment. They have in their thinking a kind of restraint and a kind of order and a kind of temperance in the way that they go about thinking things through. They're not quick and snap off, you know, just off the cuff to kind of throw things out. Their mind thinks and it's sober and it's plodding and it is careful. There's a sober-mindedness to the person. Now that speaks to the discipline uh, of a disciplined life. Someone has a disciplined mind. It's a mind that demonstrates level-headedness, sound judgment. Number three, self-control. Now you can see we're moving here from just this big broad word to be disciplined to a disciplined, restrained, sound judgment, level-headed kind of mind, now to, you know, the practices of one's life. Is there self-control? Do they practice restraint in what they do? Is there moderation? Do they have, you know, habits or addictions in their lives that they don't control? This is a problem if you're going to be a leader, and it's a problem in your Christian life that needs to be curtailed. Uh, And that's how I wrote it down. Are we able to curtail our own appetites and our own passions. We ought to be able to be disciplined in the way that we act and live. Disciplined life, I get that. Life with borders and control, sober-mindedness, disciplined mind. Now in the exercise of my life, you see that there's self-control. And that ought to be the case in your life. It ought to be the case in all your leaders' lives to a level of being exemplary. Self-control. Now, when you think about self-control... It doesn't take long to start thinking about the sexual passions and appetites of a person. Those ought to be under control. Now, unlike the priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church, God has not called pastors uh, and leaders in the church to be celibate, right? Praise God uh, for that. Uh, It's a good thing. And that's an unfortunate thing when churches try to impose that on their leaders because, as you know, it causes all kinds of problems. You have to really be gifted to be celibate. As Jesus said, if you can't accept the statement, you should, but very few people are. So if we're, we have the passions for romance and sexual companionship and all of that, that's great. And as the Bible says, for every Christian, it ought to be focused on the legitimate, uh, legal, if you will, morally legal and, and, and ethical outlet for that. And that's within the confines of marriage. The powerful passion, powerful emotion, but it needs to be controlled, self-controlled. In this case, uh, referring to um, what, I, what I shorthanded called one wife. The text, though, as you'll see, if you've got the text open here in 1 Timothy 3, as it, you see it's an A, B, and C one, it comes up in, in both for the deacon uh, in 1 Timothy 3 and for the elder in 1 Timothy 3 and for the elder in Titus chapter 1. But look at how it's translated uh, in verse 2. Overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Okay? Now that's how it's translated. Literally, how this phrase, it's a kind of an awkward phrase. If you were to read it in the Greek text, it, it reads like this. Uh, did I even write it down? Yeah. It's, it, it has the sense of, of a, a one-woman man. That's the idea. Or, or as it's been translated before in, in more paraphrase, uh, paraphrastic uh, Bible translation, a one-woman kind of man. Okay? Now, some people look at this text and say, well, to be a leader in the church, then you can't have a divorce in your past, right? If, if that's the case. Or you could say, well, they're not polygamists, right? Uh, they can't have more than one wife. Uh, that is unfortunate, I guess, because the way it translates here, you could think very basically, well, if the guy's only got one wife, as long as it's one at a time, I guess he's okay. That's not obviously what the text is saying when you read it in the awkward, clunky Greek text, which basically says it's a, a one-woman man. What's the idea here? Um, there's a few things we could say. I guess we should take time for this, a little bit of time, a little bit of time we have. Divorce, okay? Um, there are legitimate reasons to have a second wife. 
Number one, your wife dies. Uh, what, is, uh, what does Romans 7 say? Your wife dies, you're in covenant relationship, your wife dies, you're freed from that covenant relationship. When your wife dies, you're free to, to remarry. Uh, you could have a guy, as I had once had a pastor, whose wife died and, and remarried. Second wife, two wives. Is he qualified to be a pastor? Clearly, that's not what's in view here for the one woman kind of man requirement of, of the elder or the pastor, the overseer. So that does not apply. Uh, also in the text, uh, there are, which would maybe impinge on other requirements in the text, you can't, you, uh, you, know, you could rightly divorce uh, in the scripture if your spouse is an unrepentant adulterer or adulteress. That's a biblical allowance, as Jesus taught. And as we read in the New Testament, you uh, have the right to divorce an unrepentant adulterer or adulteress. Uh, in that regard, you're free to remarry, but you're free to remarry without any penalty of committing adultery as you uh, bed down, literally, as, as the text puts it. You have sex with another woman. You're not committing adultery because you are freed from the covenant relationship because of an unrepentant adulterer or adulteress. Now, if you look at that and say, could a man be on a second wife and be a leader in the church? Well, it could, I suppose. But we need to ask again when this took place and why it took place. Because there are other things about the management of a household that may disqualify a person if there's problems in a, in a failed marriage, even though there's technically adultery that causes that and gives a biblical allowance for it. It may not be the exemplary home life that we want to replicate. Right? Then it may be we could look at someone's conversion. If we take the idea of 2 Corinthians 5 that uh, we're new in Christ, you could look at someone who got a divorce prior to their conversion, right? now becomes a Christian, gets married to a Christian or gets married before they convert and have a Christian wife who, who converts as well. And you could say, here's someone with two wives in his past or a woman with two husbands in her past, right? One current and one past. And you could say, well, in reality, this was something that took place before their conversion. Now, if you look at their life, obviously before we were converted, none of these things applied in terms of meeting the requirements. But is this guy now a one-woman kind of man? Or you could invert it, though it's not listed for the gals. You could say, is this gal a one-guy kind of woman? The, the question really has to do with fidelity, focus, if you really want to take this further into a character trait, we're talking about the flirtatious guy. We're talking about the, the womanizer. We're talking about someone who can't stay focused on being a, a faithful person in his marriage. Uh, so that's the idea. And uh, what did I, did I deal with them all? Abandonment, I guess. First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, uh, when Paul says, if your spouse leaves you, in other words, if you're married to a non-Christian, the Bible says, you uh, should stay married to them. But if that person you're married to will not live with you, doesn't want anything to do with you because you're a Christian in the text, at least that's the context for 1 Corinthians 7, then let them go. And as you let them go, it says now you're free. And the text says at the end of 1 Corinthians 7, you're free to remarry, but only in the Lord. So now pick a Christian and get married. Could you take someone who's had a wife uh, before that left and now is remarried to a Christian gal and say he's qualified or she's qualified, if you turn the genders around, to be a leader in the church, I suppose you could. But again, you'd have to ask questions about the timing of it. You'd have to ask questions, too, about what led to it and what the realities are uh, in terms of replicating uh, the lifestyle, the home lifestyle of the person. Uh, so that has to be handled on a case-by-case -case basis. But the text, when we say one wife, 
Uh, certainly does involve polygamy, by the way. I was in a mission, missionary context where I had a guy in a culture where they all have multiple wives. And, you know, I was asked the question, is the visiting theologian in that case, you know, what, what about this um, person? And the response had to be, listen, you got three wives. I can't tell you to divorce two of them and, you know, be a leader in the church. I just need to say you're not qualified to be a leader in the church because you've got multiple wives. And that's how the culture in the bush in that jungle operated. But there were some that they were raising up that had one spouse, and that was great. So applies to polygamy, applies, applies to the womanizer, the flirt, the guy who can't stay focused on his marriage. You get that one? That's going to raise questions, I know, but that was as good as I could do in seven minutes. Now, we're talking about self-control, passions of his life or her life in terms of marriage, sexual passions. And the other one now, wine, addicted to wine. Now, look at these. All of these in the middle here are A, B, and C references. In other words, both to the Crete elders, the Ephesus elders or pastors, and the deacons as well. All of it, this is repeated because it's a problem. And it was a problem in their day. It's certainly a problem in our day. And uh, it's more of a problem in our day because our wine, our beer, our uh, alcoholic beverages are much more potent than they were in the first century. Not in every case, but in the average, in most cases. The, the, The prohibition here is much like it is in Ephesians. You can't get drunk. This is someone that doesn't get intoxicated. They're not addicted to wine. The idea is they're not inebriated. They don't get inebriated. They show restraint as it relates to alcohol. If you've got 1 Timothy 3 open, look down to the deacon requirement here, and it's a different Greek phrase, and it's, it's, it's even translated differently for us, and that's helpful. Um, verse 8, deacons, dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. Now look up in the first part as it relates to the qualifications for overseers. Um, what does it say in verse 3? Not a drunkard. Now those are translated differently because they're different Greek phrases. The idea of a drunkard, obviously, someone who gets drunk, someone who gets inebriated, someone who, you know, gets drunk and passes this, this point of, of having full control of their senses. This one, though, where it's translated uh, not addicted to much wine, I don't like the translation for many reasons. Number one, I, could I be addicted to a little wine? See what I'm saying? The idea is, is, is that's not the idea. Here's how the phrase literally um, awkwardly plays itself out in the Greek text. Not holding, not, well, here, I guess, literally, not much holding wine. That's literally the phrase. Not much holding wine. They're not often holding it. They're, they're, they're temperate in that they, you don't see them much drinking wine. Okay? Now, on that day, again, I said, if you go to Baja Fresh uh, and you, you buy your burrito, you've got on, on the drink register there, you've got wine and water. Right? Today, we've got a lot of options. One of the reasons that I don't drink and our staff doesn't drink is because it's an unnecessary liability in our day, especially with the cultural mores attached to it. It's not sin to drink wine, though, right? It's not sin. The sin here is you can't uh, be uh, someone who's frequently seen with it, who's someone who drinks it often or gets inebriated or is intoxicated, someone who is a drunkard or someone who is not much holding wine, not often seen with it. doesn't mean you do it in secret, right? It just means... Um, you're not a drunkard, not addicted to wine. That's a decent way to put it. Uh, Although I think every culture needs to look at the mores for it. And I've said this often, I don't want to defend my my abstinence from wine because I can't uh, justify it biblically, but I can justify it in terms of ministry philosophy, I think. And that is, uh, as we looked at 1 Corinthians 14, at least in my life, if I stand at the back door with a Kirkland bottle of water, nobody cares. Nobody gives it a second thought. If I stand back there with a Pepsi, right, they may say, hey, you could drop some calories if you didn't drink that, which, by the way, I, I don't drink anymore. Um, I don't even drink Pepsi anymore. Now I'm really crazy. Uh, 
But if I stood back there with a wine cooler in my hand or a beer in my hand at the end of the service and shook hands at the end of the weekend service, that'll, that's gonna, that'll be an issue, right? Why? Because our culture has a stigma as it relates to that. For as much of the freedom as exercised among Christians today, it's still when the pastor does it, there's a, there's a cloud over that. And that's why I think every culture needs to determine that. Now, if I'm back in Luther's day in Germany, right, uh, that may be a different cultural setting than it is here in the United States today. Uh, so every generation, every culture needs to determine, uh, I think, what their policies will be, even though we can't, with biblical force, be able to employ that in someone else's life, other than to say we can in our church, for instance, say, hey, our pastors are not going to drink alcohol. That's just what we're going to decide to do. And that is what we've decided to do. Um, but the biblical requirement is not addicted to wine, not much holding wine, not getting intoxicated. Okay? That's controversial as well. I'm sorry. This one will be less controversial, I hope. Number six, not a lover of money, although it is a little controversial these days, it seems. Uh, not a lover of money. What does that mean? Well, it means exactly what it seems to mean. I don't have um, a love of money. That's at least one of the ways it's put. If you look at it, this is an A, B, and C or as well. So look at First Corinthians or First Timothy 3, calling it Corinthians for some reason. Look at how it's put in the bottom of verse 3. Not a drunkard, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And that's literally how it's put, okay? There's not a, a love of it. Ah, oh, got to have it, right? There, there's a sense of contentment, as Paul demonstrated in his life. In little or a lot, whatever, we'll live the Christian life, we'll do it. Obviously, we'd all like to have money, and it's important, and it's helpful. But we're not loving it, right? It's not greedy. Because what does First Timothy 6 say? It says that it is the root of all evil. What? Money? The love of money. When my heart has got to have it. Now, drop down, for instance, in uh, the second category, there are qualifications for deacons, it says. Uh, let's look at where it deals with money. What verse is that? 13? What is it? Verse 8, thank you. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, that's a different phrase, and it's translated differently, thankfully, because it is different. It has this sense of greed, which is a lot like love, for dishonest gain. And, and in that regard, I think, at least in the tradition of Protestant churches in America, one of the goals is to keep the pastors poor because even in Catholicism, there was this sense if you want to be godly, you ought to have a vow to chastity. That's not a biblical idea. As a matter of fact, Paul's pushing hard to make sure that the workers are worthy of their wages and that they get paid and you don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. As a matter of fact, he says of pastors that do their jobs well in 1 Timothy, he says you ought to pay them double, grant them double honor, and that picture is one of payment. So it's not about that. It's about the greed. It's about having to have a materialistic life. It's having a love of money. It's people that can't get enough. It's the sense of being even stingy with what they do have, right? That's the problem. And the problems that we look for when it relates to leadership is greed, materialism, stinginess, the love of having to have more, wanting to be rich. All of those things, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, have to be expunged from our lives. We shouldn't have it. It shouldn't be a part of it. Now, look at how that fits under a disciplined life. Disciplined sexually, disciplined in terms of things like alcohol, disciplined in terms of our own economic love and our love for money, right? We're going to be content. Look at the next one here. Not quick-tempered. Self-controlled in terms of my temper, thumos, the heat, the, the, the bubbling up of my anger in my heart. Now, godly people are going to get angry. As a matter of fact, half the time the Bible speaks of anger, it attributes the anger to God. Uh, Christ himself, the paragon of virtue, gets angry. Your pastors are going to get angry. Every godly person is going to get angry. Every Christian in the room should get angry. You should get angry and not sin, though. And you should be a long time to get angry. It should take a lot to get you angry. You should not have a hair trigger. You should not be, as this text 
you know, uh, graphically puts it, you shouldn't be quick-tempered. You don't get angry quickly. You don't fly off the handle with slight provocation. You're able to control your temper. That's the idea. Does it mean you never get angry? No. It means, though, that you're not the kind that's known for being angry quickly, flying off the handle with slight provocation. Number eight, this goes even further. This is a strong word here, not violent. It says this both in Titus and Timothy for the pastors. Not given to physical violence. This has the picture of a fighter or a brawler or a bully, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, it's paired with, if you look at the text here in verse First uh, Timothy 3, let's find that one, verse 3, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle. Those are paired together, and I didn't separate those. The idea is you're, you're able to respond to people with diplomacy and not just throwing your fists around. You're not a bully, as some lexicons put it. You're not, you know, you're not pushing people down stairways, which, by the way, D.L. Moody once did after a sermon. Uh, one of his detractors came, and he pushed him down a stairway. Uh, so that was certainly a violation of this text. But like I said, even that, though I'm not trying to say give me one pass and one coupon for beating somebody up, uh, if it's not a pattern of his life, as D.L. Moody was quick to do to repent and say he was sorry and you know, get, get that fixed up, I don't think it would disqualify someone uh, indefinitely, but uh, certainly is not what we want to see. We don't want to see a quick-tempered person. Uh, I think of uh, J. Frank Norris. Anybody read his story? Pastor of uh, First Baptist Church in Houston 100 years ago. He shot a man in, in the pastor's study. <laughs> wow. I mean, that amazing. Uh, it's an interesting story. There's about four or five biographies of J. Frank Norris uh, on the Amazon if you want to read one of them. But, uh, and some are a little long-winded, but the, uh, the, the, the story of this guy, I mean, a very prominent pastor of a mega church. I know you think mega churches are new. Thousands and thousands of people went to First Baptist. Uh, I said Houston. It wasn't Houston. It was uh, Fort Worth, First Baptist of Fort Worth. He was the pastor there, and he shot a man. Uh, he was an incendiary kind of preacher, and uh, a lot of people don't like him anyway just for his preaching, but he had an enemy who came in and, and he pulled a gun out of his drawer and shot him, and he went to trial uh, for his life. He was uh, going to be, he was charged with uh, first-degree murder, and it bore the penalty of, of, uh, of course, this is Texas, of execution, and he ended up, well, you can read the book. I don't want to steal the punchline if you end up getting the book, but uh, <laughs> it is an interesting story. But there's a guy you'd say, you know, uh, You'd have to look at his life. I mean, that's, pretty, that's a pretty big deal. It would be hard to get back up in the pulpit, which, by the way, if you do read his story, he was back in the pulpit the next Sunday after killing this guy. You're gonna, somebody's going to buy the book and read it, but uh, there's a few of them you can read all about. It. Not violent, though. I haven't shot anybody. I haven't beat anybody up. Praise the Lord. Uh, that's the idea. I'm pushing anybody down a stairway. I felt like it many times, but I haven't done it. I've controlled myself, living a disciplined life. Praise God. So far, by God's grace. Shows patience and forbearance. That's the idea. All right, moving quickly here. Has a restrained mouth. Now, what did I say, James 3? No one's got a perfect mouth. No one restrains their words perfectly. No one speaks and doesn't sin. But there is a sense in which we have an exemplary use of our words. And I've so many times I've spoken because I speak more than anybody should, you know, want to get those words right back in my mouth after I say them. I know there are times, you know, we've all blown it and leaders are going to blow it. But we should be, not double-tongued, right? We shouldn't have, and that's a weird translation, but I've just used the ESV translations here, but it is literally what it says. You don't say one thing and then turn around and say something different about the same topic. You're not a liar. You're, you're truthful. You're a truthful, honest, forthright, not deceptive, not duplicitous person. That's what this text is all about. When you speak, you can be counted on for speaking the truth. doesn't mean you always have to say everything that needs to be, you know, that, that is there, obviously, but it does mean you, you are an honest, forthright, truthful, non-deceptive 
person. We don't want liars. You shouldn't be one. Your leaders shouldn't be. Not slanderers either. Uh, slanderers. This one is given specifically to the ladies who lead. Of course, now the males shouldn't be that either. But uh, whenever you see those four or five that are given to the ladies uh, in, in 1 Timothy 3.11, you can know that those are usually special temptations for gals. And in this case, the slander uh, is, is one that I know we're all guilty of it at times. But the point is, that should not be the pattern or characteristic of our lives. What you may want to know, and you may know this once I say it, you'll say, oh yeah, that's right. The word slanderer uh, is the word diabolos. Diabolos is the word that it's transliterated, the devil, right? Diablo. Is that Spanish? Uh, Diabolos. The devil. The devil is known as a slanderer, right? He's always tearing down people with his words. He goes before God and Job, and he says, Job, well, he's just a... And he's only serving you because of... That's the slanderer. The negative right? Person who tears down, ridicules, gossips about other people. That's what the slanderer does. And your leaders shouldn't be, and you shouldn't be a liar or a slanderer. Thirdly, you shouldn't be quarrelsome. Now, this is only listed in the first list, the, the A list, but nevertheless, it is something that you could have put under, I suppose, just generally under the, the disciplined life, restrained life. But here, this obviously speaks to our words. One who doesn't engage in hostile arguments easily, not quick to you know, get in some verbal battle. This is kind of the verbal expression of the violent description that we ended the other list with, not given to hostile arguments. Wants to seek peace rather than a verbal battle, although there's times that you have to. Um, you're someone who not always itching for a verbal fight, restrained mouth. D, oversees a godly home oversees a godly home. I say that because it's only given in this context to the men in 1 Timothy 3, to the Presbyteros appointment Episcopos, and to the same in Timothy, uh, Titus 1, and to the deacons, the male deacons in, in uh, 1 Timothy 3, A, B, and C lists, manage their household well. Now, let's look at these texts. We need to see them, and all three of them are different, and they expand on one another, so uh, let's do that. Let's start with uh, the deacon one, verse 12. 1 Timothy 3, 12. We'll go backwards here. This is list C. Let deacons be the husband of one wife. Got that. Now, it's simply stated here. Managing their children and their households well. Okay, now that goes beyond just my kids. It, it deals with my finances, right? How I deal with my home. Even, you know, I talked about the, the wall torn down. The, the, you know, am I you know, struggling under a mound of debt? Am I, is my credit rating terrible? Are my kids out of control? That's the idea there. Manages his household well. Go back up to verses 4 and 5 as it's listed for the elders, the pastors. It says he must manage his household well. This is 3, 4. With all dignity, okay, so I've got the respect of my home, my family, keeping his children submissive, there's our word hupotasso, right, They're, that my kids, they respect their dad and they do what he says. For if someone, look at how it's put here, does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Love that parallel. In other words, you shouldn't even think of having someone in charge of something in the church if they can't adequately be in charge of and successfully be in charge of their own family. This is so important. And again, in the climate of today's wounded leader mentality, it doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, it's great if the pastor can get up and say, my kids are on drugs, my kid's in juvie hall this week, and, you know, isn't it, and everybody identifies, and it's so wonderful, and what a great sermon, and wasn't it great, our pastor's human. That's not right, what the Bible requires. Matter of fact, you shouldn't be able to say those things of, of your pastor. And anybody who teaches you and leads you in the church, you should be able to look at them and say, uh, their kids are respecting him. He has dignity in his kids' eyes. His kids are submissive, and he manages his home well. That's required. 
I don't know why the church today just so badly wants to toss this out the window, but they do. Titus 1.6. Um, this one we need to look at because it's, it's often one that gets very confused in people's minds, and it's very controversial and contentious. So let's look at the wording of this in Titus 1.6. Titus 1.6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are, here's how it's translated in the ESV, believers. Now look, we've got to keep reading though. And not open to the charge of debauchery, which is an old-fashioned word, not, not partiers, right? Or insubordination. They're not rebellious. They don't look at their dad and roll their eyes. He has dignity. It's a lot of what we saw in, in, in 1 Timothy 3, disobedient, rebellious kids. Now, the nots are debauchery and insubordination. The pro here is believers, right? Now, here's a problem theologically. How can I ensure that my kids are believers? Think that through. If believer means a converted Christian who's repentant and put their trust in Christ, that means every pastor who has a newborn completely disqualified. Why? Because his kids aren't saved. They're born sinners. Romans 5. There's no way. So he's got to sit out till his kids get to a place of repenting of their sins. See what I'm saying? There's a problem here with that. Uh, not to mention if it means my offspring need to, you know, be believers and, okay, we'll give them a pass when they're kids, but they all, how can I ensure that? How can I ensure that my kids are called? I mean, you want to be Calvinistic about it. How can I be ensure that my kids are elect? I don't know that. All I can do is present them with the gospel. And in my role as a parent, all I can do is keep them submissive in terms of under control in their behavior. As the text goes on to read, they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Is there any other way to read this text? Yeah, there is. Literally, the idea here is, and the word is, faithful, okay? Full of faith. And that's why it's translated believers, because they have faith. But that's not, not I don't think this is salvific faith. I think this is the adjectival description of someone who is faithful. The children are those who are faithful. What does that mean? That they're not open to the charge of insubordination or debauchery. That they are kids that are managed well. To now pair it with the other two. Okay, here's how it says. His kids are submissive. Or the other one says, managing his children and household well. It's the management of my children that's required. It's the submission of my children that's required. Right? That I can control. It is my faithfulness of my kids that is in, in view here not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, okay? So some pastors don't view that text this way. I, I think it's the only way I can make sense of it, both chronologically in terms of newborn kids and theologically in terms of seeing my kids saved. That's a God thing. All I can do is share the gospel with them and train them up in the gospel truths, but I can't get them saved. So faithful can be translated just as legitimately, uh, at least in my opinion, as, as I read this, this Greek text, to be faithful. And many people agree with that interpretation. What happens if my kid be, is a non-Christian, never becomes a Christian? I don't think that disqualifies me from being a pastor. But I am disqualified if my kid is in juvenile hall, and it's not for sharing the gospel. It's for something like, you know, whatever, selling drugs or whatever. Then I would have to be, I would have to step down. Um, once he's out of my home, though, and I'm not managing my own children, and I'm not keeping them submissive in my own household, that's a different story as well. The only thing that I think would drive this beyond the pale of me being qualified or your pastors being qualified is if they become notoriously... I mean, my kid is, I don't know, Dahmer or something. And I think then my reputation with outsiders would not be good. So there is a place where it, it, my, my kids may grow up, never become Christians, leave the home and be your typical, you know, beer drinking, uh, you know, crazy... Uh, that was... Never mind. Uh, weekend drunk, let's say that, 
Even that I've got to be careful with. But they could be that, and I could still be qualified unless the notorious nature of their sin was so notorious that my reputation with outsiders was now impinged. But my point is, while they're in my home, they ought to be under control. They ought to have my, res- they ought to have my respect. They ought to respect me. They ought to be submissive. They ought not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That's my take on that, because someone's going to ask. Hospitable. In my home... My home needs to be, and I've taught on this word many times, it's the word phileo, which is love, and xenos, which is uh, outside of my circle. I mean, it's often translated uh, you know, outside my ethnic boundaries, but it doesn't mean that. It just means that I am someone who is willing to treat outsiders like insiders. Does that mean I have people over to my house? Well, it does mean that too, right? Because in that sense, there's one application of the philo xenos, and that is that I'm willing to treat people like they're part of my family, if someone comes over, I feed them, I, I'm hospitable, I lay out the welcome mat, I need to be hospitable. And I guess in that regard, you could define it this way as well. I'm not the kind of person that is overly closed off or overly private. Can't be that. I got to be able to treat people who are outsiders with the kind of love as though they're insiders. You know, it, There's that sense of being a lover of outsiders, hospitable. It isn't just so narrowly defined as you've got to have people over to your house every weekend, although if your pastor never had people in his home, then I think that, that could be a disqualifying matter, if you know what I'm saying. Not overly closed off, not overly personal, and a lot of pastors these days make this an art form, right? Just they hunker down and no one knows them, and you know, they, I, I go to these conferences sometimes, they say you should you know, never have any friends in the church and uh, you know, unlist your number and do you know, all these things. Now, there, there are obviously some logical boundaries you have to, 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 uh, uh, to draw in large churches. I get that, or you'd never get any sleep. But uh, you can't find your pastor being someone who's a hermit, who's so closed off or overly private that they don't love outsiders. That's the idea. Letter E, has a humble heart. Let's call it that, has a humble heart. Now, you'll see how this is related. I probably, on second thought, should have listed these in a different order. But in 1 Timothy 3.10, it says that people shouldn't be deacons. This is list C. So we're talking about the deacons here, the ministry leaders. They shouldn't become ministry leaders unless they're tested first. Then let them serve as ministry leaders if they prove themselves to be blameless. Now, that was the separate, we separated that out and equated it with above reproach. But the idea here is they ought to have a track record. They ought to be able, you ought to be able to look at them and, and say they're, they're not new at this. Why? Well, because much like in the A list in 1 Timothy 3 as it relates to the pastors, they can't be new converts. They can't just be thrown into this or they may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And the devil's problem, according to Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, was pride. And you can't have someone exalted to leadership so quickly if they don't have the sense of having a track record and being tested because pride will be the temptation and immaturity. Unfortunately, uh, often pride comes with that if they're not a recent convert. And again, you can see there's so many things that go with that. If you're a recent convert, you can't be doctrinally mature. You can't be spiritually mature. Uh, You've got to have some maturity and you've got to be willing and able to look at a track record that has provided some sense of uh, dignity and humility to be tested first. Three, not arrogant. It just comes right out and says it in the B list here in Titus, just very simply, not arrogant, (laughs) Uh, which is the concern of not being new at this and and not being someone who's just thrown into this. 
can't be presumptuous, can't be self-willed, can't wanting to just do all this for yourself. And there's a lot of people, oh, it's scary, who want ministry only because it's about them. They want the labels, they want the monikers, they want, you know, they want stuff, they want all the badges, they want someone to recognize them and call them titles. And that's just the, the it, it's so many people in the church want that. And that's the kind of thing we got to avoid. And someone's simply disqualified sometimes because of their zeal to want to be recognized and have people tip their hats to them as somebody important in the church. Um, and tested first is a good thing because you're tested long. If you're tested long enough, you'll realize it ain't about the titles and the monikers and the badges and people calling you rabbi on the street. It, that will carry you for about three months. And then after that, if you're doing real ministry, you're humbled in the process. Anyway, humble heart. We're out of time. Quickly now. Effective teacher. There's only one on this because there's once in the A list and once in the Titus list and the B list that speaks to teaching. It says you got a hold of the firm and trustworthy word as it was taught so that you'll be able to give instruction, Titus says, in sound doctrine and be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, it doesn't contradict any of the others. It says you can't be quarrelsome and all that. No, you're going to have to rebuke. You're going to have to reprove. You're going to have to exhort. But you've got to be able to know the word well enough to do that. And in a simple phrase, in First, Ti- in First Timothy 3, 2, it just says apt to teach or able to teach. So there's the skill set that's required for the pastors at least. And it wraps up. That's our 25th requirement with one minute to spare. All right. Lecture 10 completed.